Hey, history students, we're back in the studio here for you today. I think we've got a really awesome topic uh, to talk about, uh, this time period uh, between World War I and World War II, from 1919 to about 1939. We're going to focus on these uh, political ideologies that I'm sure you've heard of before, communism and fascism, and some people that I'm sure you've heard about as well. I can't remember that guy with the funny mustache is in there. Uh, remember, all of our calls, our Collaborate calls, are going to be on uh, Thursday from 2 to 3. They probably won't last any more than a half an hour, but just in case. And on Tuesday, um, you will have the opportunity, or I'll at least be here in my office, and I usually am anyhow, uh, from 2 to 3 as kind of virtual office hours. So if you need to reach out to me, first text me. Uh, that number, if uh, you didn't get it in the call, is 630-774-0459. But again, uh, text me beforehand to make sure that I'm around or not on the phone with somebody else. Um, that would be great. So I do have a song to go along with this lesson plan, uh, and I think it's pretty appropriate, but I'm going to let you tell me what that song title is. So if you can guess this and tell me by Thursday... Uh, by the call, uh, you get some extra points for this, okay? So we'll try this. I think it also applies to today and kind of what we're going through. So here we go. fun. We're going to put the guitar away and get onto the slide so you should open up the slides from that lecture which I posted on Blackboard. Slide number two is just the Mission Possible essay number 11. It's comparing contrasting these ideologies of communism and fascism and <clears throat> were these ideologies successful? Okay, the start of this lecture is actually pretty interesting. I, I thought about this um, a while back, and one of the things I'm fascinated with is you know sports history as well. And after the uh, Great War, they do hold the Olympic Games in Paris, and I've got a list there of, of countries. I want you to do a little research, which is not gonna be very difficult to do, to find out who won the most medals and who was not even there at this Olympic game in 1924. And then we're going to contrast that with the 1936 Olympics that were held in Berlin. Okay, so there's a couple slides that are about the British. Uh, <clears throat> the movie Chariots of Fire, which is a fabulous movie and started a whole running craze in this country back in the 80s, uh, was about a true story about Eric Lindell and uh, Harold Abrams and their competition within the Olympics. Uh, and I won't go into a lot of that, but if you ever get a chance to watch that movie, it's an excellent movie on that, uh, on that Olympics. So what we're gonna try to do is look at these ideologies and you'll see on slide six that I've got communism to the left and fascism to the right of democracy. 
So we often talk about like today that, you know, the Democrats are on the left and the Republicans are on the right. And maybe we're missing this whole center area where we're, you know, like have moderate people on both sides. Uh, we do have democracy, but you're going to see how democracy uh, doesn't function very effectively and why that's the case. OK, so let's start with democracy and then work our way around the horn on these. All right. So democracy after the war uh, reevaluates itself and government is turned into what we might call today a welfare state. Somebody, a government that's supposed to take care of people, supposed to be a safety net. Very similar today with this package of you know $1.2 trillion. Well, in that case, government was seen as helping out the military because a lot of those military uh, soldiers that went to back to Great Britain or France did so in really bad shape. If you look at the picture there, you'll know what I'm talking about. And you'll see the term basket case. Basket case did not mean somebody that was crazy. Basket case actually meant carrying around a person in a basket because they had no legs. Okay, So these people are that. So there's a new term and the government's responsible for these people, which seems to make a lot of sense to me. Women also get the right to vote during this period of time because uh, after the war, um, and with the exception of France. And that's seen as them playing a role in the war as well, either in production or in other supporting roles. The, ne the next couple slides are just uh, about what happens to democracies during the war. And so I'm not going to belabor all of these, but let's just take one example. Great Britain, 33% of their naval fleet was destroyed. They went through a tremendous economic slowdown after the war. Uh, and they owed about $4 billion to the United States, which is hard to translate that today. But let's say that's at least uh, half a trillion dollars is my guess. Okay. <clears throat> if you go on, next slide, you've got Germany. Germany, a lot of their industry was confiscated. And when they defaulted on the loan, France actually reinvaded some of their most productive land. So Germany started just printing money marks that's their currency and you can see the difference there which is just just drastic to say the least so in 1914 four marks equaled one american dollar 1923 4.2 trillion marks equaled one dollar okay eventually that would get cleaned up through the dawes act uh, would help actually the U.S. would loan money to Germany so Germany could then pay uh, Great Britain and France. And of course, Great Britain and France then had to pay America. Okay, it's a goofy situation, but that's what it was. All right, eventually their loan is forgiven in 1932. Uh, the League of Nations that came out of the Great War that America was not involved with also tried to take uh, stances on avoiding or eliminating the opportunity or the possibility of war. Did that through the naval disarmament, also assisted war refugees, and eventually opened up the door for both Germany and Russia to be part of the League of Nations. 1929 to 1932, the United States experiences a Great Depression. And with that Great Depression, that goes viral worldwide. It impacts as impacts everybody, but for sure European 
uh, countries, okay? At that time, like the United States, if you've heard of the U.S. history as being called in the 20s being the Roaring Twenties, a good time to economically and stuff to be, you know, in this country. Well, a lot of it was fueled by this advertising craze, getting people to want new consumer goods products and allowing them to buy on credit. Eventually, all countries, including the United States, overproduced. And when that happened, the whole system went downhill, okay? I did not know on the next slide, which is slide 13, that Ben and Jerry's made that totalitarian uh, uh, ice cream. Mm, I wonder what that tastes like. Probably not very good with those guys on it. Well, anyway, we want to make sure that you're aware that both fascism and communism are totalitarian uh, states or countries, okay? And long ago, we talked about kings being really powerful, especially the French king under an absolute monarchy. But in this case, the totalitarian state is basically controls everything. They've got people monitoring public and private lives, for example. Let's take one of them. Well, actually two of them. We're going to compare and contrast at least up front communism and fascism. There's a difference between the two of them. You might think like dictators are all the same. Well, there's some similarities, but uh, in economics, there's not, okay? Communism rejects private property. Fascism supports private property. Communism denounces uh, economic inequalities. Everybody should make the same amount of money. Fascism approves economic inequalities. These are two systems that are competing that are on kind of the polar opposite ends. With that known, let's jump into communism. After the war, communism was uh, denied foreign loans. And why would a capitalist country want to, you know, support a communist country? It's a good point. Uh, They didn't, okay? They also became very paranoid because there's two things going on. One, there was a civil war inside Russia. There's what historians call the White Russians and the Red Russians. The Red Russians are like the Red Army. They duke it out, and over a period of time, they eventually come to a compromise. But that compromise is pretty disappointing for Russians. They lose a lot of land, um, West Ukraine uh, and Poland. The second part of this is that foreign nations, including the United States and Great Britain, are part of this the white Russians. They actually back them, and in some cases, they actually land foreign forces on Russian territory. Re- remember that Russia was an ally of Great Britain and France, but once they dropped out of the equation for the war, that all went downhill. The next slide <clears throat> shows you a picture of Lenin, who we talked about before as being the leader of this communist revolution, the Bolsheviks. He comes up with probably one of the worst names ever for an economic policy, new economic policy. Wow, how creative is that? Don't get me started on like team names again, okay? Uh, this one's pretty interesting because he, he understands that collectivization of farmlands has failed miserably. And because of that, he's willing to compromise. So he returns to a capitalist system, at least in part. He also eliminates pretty much this idea or call for an international revolution 
for everybody to go communist. And this provides some stability, but also provides a lot of debate with inside the Communist Party, right? Are people going to go in the right direction? Eventually, Stalin died. Um, he had a stroke in 1922 and 1924. He passed away. He didn't really have anybody that he recommended or supported uh, as a successor for him. You'll see a picture of him. You can actually visit him today in Russia. So if you want to take a field trip, let's do that. Uh, we can actually see his body. That's his actual real body. And you can go around it and, and look at it as you can probably see there. I don't think that they appreciate like selfies or anything like that. But, you know, just be forewarned, okay? So it comes down to two choices for the replacement of Lenin. Trotsky's one, and he seems to be the obvious one. The person that we'd all predict, because he was the right arm of Lenin. He was also the head of pretty much the Red Army. And he was a very intelligent guy. But then there's another guy, and you'll see his name there. And I don't want to butcher it, so I'm just going to call him by his nickname, Comrade Card Index. He was the secretary of the Communist Party. Um, so he knew a lot of people. He had a lot of connections there. His name is on the next slide, Joseph Stalin. Okay, Stalin is actually means in Russian, man of steel. So doesn't that say something about Stalin as a person, like what kind of ego he has? You can only imagine. Well, eventually he banishes Trotsky because Trotsky is outspoken, critic of uh, Stalin, and Trotsky is assassinated in 1940 in Mexico with that pickaxe right there. So had to be had couldn't have been a lot of fun. We we don't know exactly who did it, but I'm sure that Stalin was behind that. Okay, after Stalin takes over power, there's a purge. There's a price to be paid. So he wants to get rid of people that he thinks are not necessarily loyal to him. So he has these show trials, uh, and he eliminates 70% of the party leadership that was with Lenin, about 50% of the army. This uh, Nikolai Yosensky, or Yosef, Yos sorry, Yosef, uh, is the head of that purge of about 3 million people. Eventually, Nikolai will actually be part of the purge as well. So um, Stalin gets people to roll out his programs, and when they do, and they become maybe too powerful and too outspoken and stuff, he gets rid of them. Those people were either killed, the three million, or they were sent off to what's called a gulag, which is like a work camp in Siberia. And you work 14, 16 hours a day, and you barely have enough food, and you're probably going to die not shortly after that you get there, okay? He creates a constitution, which is known as the Stalin Constitution. That's not the official name. It looks and smells a lot like a democracy or a republic, okay? Universal suffrage, people getting to vote. Seems really good, but on the next slide there, which is on 23, you're going to see that there's only one legal party, which is the Communist Party. So you can only vote for really one person. The Politburo is the advising team to the secretary. And the secretary is really like the president, except in this case, they're going to have complete power. That's going to be Stalin's position. 
and he will rule the country with an iron fist. Stalin looks at domestically what he has to do, and he looks for two things. One is loyalty, and two is economic growth. So he can't survive without either one of them. And economically, he has these five-year plans that try to modernize the country. Uh, They sacrifice everything for the country. So this is not about, like, America is about individual attainment. This is about a team attainment. And it sounds really, really good, but there's some downsides to this. Is he successful? Absolutely. It increases by 1,400% from the 20s to the 30s, and we are pretty sure that their economic um, position is number two behind the United States in the 30s. So they've jumped over all these European countries, right? Uh, Where he does not do a very good job is collectivization of agriculture or farming. And he creates a famine that leads to probably five to seven million people dying in just three years, many of them from Ukraine. Um, This one's kind of a tough one because, you know, he probably should have learned from Lenin. Lenin tried this as well, and it didn't really work, but he tried it, okay? Uh, The next slide is a key one. So slide 26 is one of those that you want to kind of highlight or think about. In the end, he creates what we consider to be like a self-social welfare government, like I said, with Great Britain and to a large extent the United States. Okay, so he guarantees full employment, he creates health care, housing, education, <clears throat> gender equality. Women are actually allowed to have abortions long before they can have them here in the United States. Um, eventually he rolls that thing back, but there is this is the what I call the grand illusion. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the American group, actually they're from Chicago, called Sticks, <clears throat> but they had a grand illusion album. And that illusion is that that's not real. I mean, some of those things, yes, he does, even education, but a lot of the education is, you know, indoctrinating those people into communism. Uh, And gender equality is rolled back at at times, even the right to vote for women, okay? All of those are built on certain assumptions, okay? Fear, obedience, death, starvation, dislocation and even de-Christianization, like we talked about in the French Revolution. So there's a cost to be paid for this, and it's not even real in the end, okay? Eventually, the communist, or Stalin, uh, the Soviet Union, does obtain approval and gets legitimacy through the United States in 1933 when they start trading with them, and the League of Nations in 1934 when they are... um, part of the League of Nations, okay? Even with all this, Stalin is one thing, if nothing else. He's always paranoid about stuff, and he probably should be. So uh, another key element here is that when Manchuria, uh, when the Japanese invade Manchuria, which is just just above China in 1931, uh, you know, he feels like he's being attacked. When he asked for an alliance against Germany, Italy, and Japan to the League of Nations, they ignore him. And when he says he'd like to help defend Czechoslovakia, Great Britain and France roll him under the bus. 
So he's actually ahead of things in some cases. Had he, you know, had we listened to him, maybe uh, things would be, well, it would be different for sure. Would it have been better? Would Stalin have been any better than Hitler? I, I can't really speak to that, but uh, it might be have, have been a risk worth taking in all of this, okay? So the next slide is another one of those that's pretty important. In the end of the day, Western powers had to decide, okay, who they were going to kind of trust. They fear both of them, but they probably think of them as the lesser of two evils. So there's that show, Fear Factor, that's a little bit old now. but um, And eventually what they pick is fascism. They're, they, they're more concerned about communism over fascism. Again, if I was to roll the dice and I could do it over again, I think that uh, in this case, communism would have been a better option than having Hitler and having a war. Not sure that would have happened with communism, but it's possible. Okay, so let's jump into fascism. I've got uh, fascist states are created in Italy, Germany, and Spain during the 20s and 30s. Mussolini is the first to really get out. If you want to give one person the credit for starting fascism, he's the guy. He's got the slogan, believe, obey, and fight. Who's he going to fight? He doesn't care. He just fights everybody, all right? The attraction of fascism, unlike communism, is that it's based on traditional values. You know, patriotism, religion, where communists are considered to be anti-God. you know, God. At least the fascists accept that. The reality of fascism is it doesn't have any foundation to it. Uh, it is, as Dr. Buckholz, a, a history teacher at Loyola, said, it's a hodgepodge of ideas. Okay? It's not really, they're just making up as they go along here, okay? So I've given you a little information on Italy uh, and the uh, Mussolini, who comes from, you know, like very modest background. Dad was a shoemaker. He was a teacher at one time. The turning point for him was the March on Washington, and they, or March on Washington, March on uh, Rome in 1922, the king is convinced that he's got to do something with Mussolini, so he puts him as prime minister. Uh, that's a mistake, but uh, El Duce, as he's called, uh, makes a lot of changes, suspends the Constitution, outlaws, outlaws political opposition, censorship of, hopefully you can figure that one out, and he also makes an agreement with the Vatican or the Catholic Church, which is located in Rome. He says, you can have your own city, you know, you'll be the official religion, I'm going to pay, the state will pay the priest, the, the, the priests have to take an oath to the, the uh, state, okay, the church obviously going to support the ruler, so um, they did that, so the Catholic Church um, didn't know everything that was going on, but they were also culpable in this crisis that we're going to run into in World War II, all right. In the end, he's not quite sure about Hitler, uh, when he comes to power, uh, but what convinces him that he can be a friend is his invasion or Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. Hitler supports that and provides aid. So you can see the two of them sitting in the back of a car. They become best of friends for at least a period of time. Hitler doesn't really uh, admire Mussolini, although he takes a lot of things from Mussolini. Ideas, fascism being one of them. Okay, 
So the second part is let's talk about the Germans. The Germans are unstable. You know, I mean, it makes sense. After the war, you know, what happened to them? They paid. They had owed a lot of money. They were, they were uh, held responsible for the war. And with that, there was a lack of stability and a growth of a communist party. So CP stands for Communist Party. A guy named Hitler, oh, that's the guy with the weird mustache. Well, his pathway to power is pretty interesting. He, he is an art student, and he's pretty good. That's a, a painting that Hitler did. He uh, tries to get into art school in Vienna and is rejected. Not sure exactly why, but um, he is. Uh, had he not been, boy, just think how things would have been different. He picks up a lot of anti-Semitism, which is anti-Jewish, uh, in, in, during his stay there. Uh, he did win some medals for bravery during the war. And he also joins this National Socialist German Workers' Party, which is a mouthful, um, better known as the Nazis. And eventually he'll become Die Fuhrer, which is the leader. Okay, I think you're learning German again. That's pretty cool. So, and I've got another word for you that you could probably use. Out of the war, though, he, while he's sitting being almost blinded uh, when the war is ended, so he's a soldier, he's uh, been hit with mustard gas, we believe, and can't really see, and he hears that you know Germany has decided to end the war. He thinks for sure that it was, had nothing to do with their military capabilities as it was that were sold out. So he comes up with the stabbed in the back theory, and of course he blames Jewish people for that. Okay, His path to power after that is that he's really got some guts here. Uh, he meets with uh, General Ludendorff, who fought in the war, and he convinces him that they could overthrow the government. So they tried this in Munich in 1923. Um, it's really suicidal that he does this, but it does provide him... Um, a level of legitimacy of like people are looking at him and saying, wow, look at what that guy did, okay? And the outcome of that is hard to overestimate. Um, even the judge said his, and he's talking about Hitler here, pure patriotic motives and honorable intentions. He got five years for that, but only served one, okay? During his period of time, he writes his famous book called Mein Kampf, which means my struggle in German. I told you, more German. We, I think you should get credit for that. Okay, In general, okay, this is a book that says history is all about race. Okay, And you can see the quote in there. My favorite word in there is mishmash. That is not academic language. It is a really lousy written book, but it is really influential. Right, and he does not hide behind things during this period of time. He doesn't like try to do what politicians do today, which is like say one thing and then do another. At least in the case of race here, okay. So he's going to attack the Jews head on, and people know where he's at with, with them, okay. Uh, how does he become in power? Well, the Wehrmacht Republic, so government just like the United States. Hasn't been, it's been unstable, and it becomes more unstable after the Great Depression. Uh, unemployment might have reached 95%. Uh, the president, Hindenburg, uh, gets involved with Hitler and thinks that he's not really dangerous at all, so he sets 
Hitler up as chancellor. And we don't have necessarily a position like that, but it's kind of like the vice president, except with a lot more power. Okay. Uh, After the Reichstag building, which there's a picture on number 42 there, uh, that's kind of like Congress for them, the Reichstag. After there's a fire, they uh, they use that as kind of like propaganda to uh, run this election and suspend civil liberties like freedom of press and other things. And they move in uh, groups that we call the SA and the SS, which are police, but they're not really like military police. And the SA is like stormtroopers. So if you ever thought where George Lucas got that from Star Wars, that's where he got it. Uh, even with this, even with this election in 1933, which is the same year that FDR gets elected in the United States, they only have about 44%. So, you know, there was all sorts of underhanded things that were happening during this election, and they still couldn't get 50% out of this. So a lot of German people clearly did not vote for the Nazis, okay? Well, democracy is gone after these three events the Knight of the Long Knives, he wins his election and he kills, he has the SA and SS kill about 25,000 people that opposed him. The Reichstag, the, like Congress, they outlaw other parties and they make him a dictator for four years. And on the death of uh, von Hindenburg, the year after, Hitler really is, for all intents and purposes, leading Germany from here on out. He calls this the Third Reich. Um, and what's pretty amazing about this is that the people that support him is, is pretty staggering. They build this huge stadium. So think of like Soldier Field time five or six. That's what the Nuremberg Stadium is. It can hold 400,000 people, okay? And you can see many of them are troops, and he puts these on display. He does say that this Reich will last for a thousand years. You know, he's, if nothing, optimistic about his opportunity to, you know, change Germany's history. Um, He'll be off by about 983 years, I think it is. But, you know, maybe he wasn't good in math. Uh, To support him, he's going to need a lot of people. Two of them are Goebbels, who's a propagandist and... uh, a kind of a media genius. He's going to have a person that works with him that's really his doing all this. But he'll make the Germans as popular as he possibly can in radio and film uh, and everything else. And then Eichmann is the other one, and he controls the Gestapo. And he starts concentration camps, not necessarily just for Jewish people and not to kill people at this time. That will happen later on, but he's going to be behind that. And eventually he will be the person that does kill millions and millions of Jews, okay? Just to give you an idea, the German army oath is there. Uh, You know, I swear by God, this sacred oath. It goes on, you can read that. Uh, You know, very different than what you'd see in America on the way that it uh, swears oath to a person versus an idea or a country, okay? If I had the chance, I would play a film for you I couldn't find it online that shows, compares and contrasts uh, FDR and Hitler. It's interesting, again, they both come up at the same time. They're both really good speakers, uh, but they have very, very different ideas on what should happen.
Okay. The last part is jumping back from, you know, the Paris Olympics to the Berlin Games. And that happened in 1936. And that was really, really important because that put Germany on the map. So again, I want you to find out who was the winner in this. Who was there? Things had changed drastically in just those uh, 12 years. Uh, Ring Fen Stahl is the lady that you see there that's holding up some film. She is the right arm of Goebbels, and she will make all these propaganda films, including the Olympics at that time. Okay, So if you ever get a chance, she's really known as like being like the first great movie director. That she's a female is really shocking, too, at this time, but she does. For Americans, we might think of this game as being the one that Jesse Owens won. Uh, but, in fact... It is even for Americans, what we forget about is that there was two Jewish runners that were also supposed to run during these Olympics that the Americans did not have run. And if you look at the picture there where Jesse Owens is in the middle saluting, you'll see to his left is a guy, a German, and he's actually giving the high Hitler sign. Uh, there. So that's the end of this lecture. Hopefully you enjoyed this. I, I found it really fascinating to go back and dive back into this uh, topic. There's a lot of other cool things there. Um, so have a great, uh, great weekend and everything. Before we cut you loose, if you do have any questions for me um, about you know due dates or anything else, please let me know. We will have another call on Thursday at 2 o'clock. So mark out your calendar there from 2 to 2.30, 3 o'clock. Uh, we'll be on Collaborate, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll dive into some other things and uh, take some of the stress off your back. So uh, thanks for listening, and you have a great weekend. Take care. Bye.